For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, visit a place in the desert outside Tucson that contains more than a century of aviation history. Find out about ways the public can connect directly with local farmers and how the monthly Good Food film series is taking stock of food security from many angles. A conversation between artist Willie J. Bonner and chief curator Julie Saucy, part of the Tucson Museum of Art's exhibition, 4x4. And there'll be more previews of the potential broadcasters of tomorrow as we listen to some fifth graders who entered the NPR Student Podcast Challenge. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Right now, more than 3,100 military and government aircraft are sitting quietly in the Tucson desert. This year, the facility known as the Boneyard turned 75. As Christopher Conover reports, it is still adding to aviation history. The thousands of acres of Cylon aircraft is officially known as the 309th Aerospace Maintenance and Regeneration Group, or AMARG. It's part of Tucson lore, and since the first aircraft arrived in 1946, it's helped make history. C-47 cargo planes that sat in storage took off and became part of the Berlin Airlift in 1948. AMARG planes are still actively finding their way into aviation history books. AMAR Commander Colonel Jennifer Barnard says a few years ago, a B-57 bomber built in 1953 was taken out of the desert by NASA after 39 years. And it was most recently used to chase the astronauts to splashdown. AMARG has also helped make history not by putting craft back in the air, but by making sure they can't fly. AMARG was a disposal facility for the BGM-109 Griffin, uh, which is a ground launch cruise missile. And that was after uh, President Reagan and uh, Soviet President uh, Mikhail Gorbachev signed the treaty uh, and, and, and eliminated that entire class of weapons. The missiles are gone, but Barnard says helping the U.S. comply with weapons reduction treaties is an ongoing job. We also are currently a heavy bomber storage location on the conversion and elimination under the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. Uh, and it was in 2011. So due to COVID, we haven't had the uh, Russian inspectors visit, but uh, that is something that they uh, will restart, uh, pun intended, I guess, um, here in, uh, when uh, COVID makes it a safer environment to do that. The regeneration part of AMARG's mission not only puts planes back into active service, but also into a training role. Workers at AMARG took the Vietnam-era F-4s out of the desert and turned them into drones used for training. Barnard says the program now uses F-16s. We are regenerating several of these aircraft um, for what's called full-scale aerial targets. And then we also are under a partnership with Boeing where we install the drone peculiar equipment so these aircraft can be flown manned or unmanned. And ultimately their job is to do uh, testing for weapons. The military also sends some of the newest F-16s to AMARG for upgrades. And the familiar A-10 is at the facility getting wing repairs to keep it flying. In addition to the upgrades and repairs, AMARG is also a parts yard. 
Barnard says in fiscal 2020, pulling individual parts off the planes in the desert saved the U.S. government $363 million. Our folks will go out and, uh, and reclaim those parts. The aircraft that are stored here don't belong to AMARG. They belong to each of the program offices or the services that store them here. So they, they go to the extent of telling us which tail numbers to look for those parts and uh, what uh, uh, configuration those parts should be in, what level of assembly. And so it's very good. And uh, so in general, uh, we're reclaiming a few million dollars worth of parts every week and shipping them right back out to, to be best utilized. The planes stored at AMARG over the last 75 years are the history of air power. The last U.S. helicopter out of Vietnam is among the rows of choppers. And some of the first fighter planes to respond to the 9-11 attacks are there, too. Those stories are told to the public by the 1% of AMARG planes that leave the desert for museums. Every one of those planes has a story. Every one of those uh, stories should be told, and those museums give those, those aircraft a chance to tell their story. I'm Christopher Conover, Arizona Public Media. The pandemic has made many of us reconsider our food security in different ways. One potentially positive outcome of this could be improving the way that local farmers and growers are connected with the people who depend on them. Somlin Rory, the Food and Farm Relations Manager for Good Food Finder, says their mission is to help foster these changes. The program is an initiative of the Phoenix-based organization Local First Arizona. And this year, they launched a monthly series online, bringing short films and expert speakers together to focus on this region's agricultural challenges. Yasmin Acosta spoke with Somlin Rory about the series. People tend to think very little about how food gets to our table. During times of financial crisis, such as the pandemic, I feel like this industry struggles. So I was wondering if you feel that we've learned any lessons. Absolutely. During the pandemic, what we saw in the early stages was how empty our produce shelves were um, in our supermarkets and grocery stores. And there was real panic and concern. It revealed something that was deeper within our food system, and that was just how vulnerable it is and how reliant we are as a society to those outside distribution channels that ship and truck our food in. However, it was our local farming community that truly came to the rescue. They were the ones that were able to provide locally grown fresh greens, vegetables, and fruits, as well as dairy and meat to our Arizona families. Our food team has also been involved with the Seed Phoenix Initiative, which is a powerful program and such a beautiful story about how the dollars from the CARES Act provided by the city of Phoenix brought the entire local food economy together to support and feed some of our most vulnerable communities. Somlin, can you tell us what is the goal of the Good Food film series? Well, for many of us, the thought about where our food comes from isn't something that's top of mind. And for me, as the executive producer and creator of the film series, I wanted the film to open up that internal dialogue within ourselves about our relationship with food. I wanted to bring awareness to how fragile our local food system is in Arizona. We need to start caring about where our food comes from before it's too late, because we're quickly losing our ability to feed ourselves. Additionally, I wanted to capture the stories and personalities of our farmers and those who are trying to safeguard our local food economy. Uh, they are some of the most 
wonderful, vibrant, and resilient people I've ever met. Their stories are powerful, and they come from this deep place in the heart. You know, when you think about a farmer, there's not much of a financial gain from the work that they do. And they're weathering those harsh summer months, and they're waking up at the crack of the dawn, and they're facing these challenges that are quickly pushing them out of their ability to do what they love. So for the film series, I really wanted viewers and those who may not be asking themselves about where their food comes from to change how they shop, to think and, and support more locally. How do the films encourage people to support Arizona's local food system? Well, the strongest is to buy local. I can't emphasize that enough. Show up to your local businesses. Show up to your farmers. Use your dollars um, by purchasing local food. This can be done by going to a local farmer's market or buying your produce directly from a local farmer, such as subscribing to a weekly CSA box, um, or supporting and knowing what local brands are sold at your local supermarket. We have an upcoming film that really talks about local dairy and that there are tons of brands that we are already buying, such as Hickman's Eggs and, and the supermarket brand Milk, that are actually produced and grown here in Arizona. So a lot of the purchases that we make unknowingly actually do support local. Um, another thing that individuals can do to participate this is to meet your farmers. Uh, use the Good Food Finders directory to find a farm near you and let them know that you appreciate the work that they're doing, that what they're doing matters. And many are always in need of volunteers and help. So consider donating your time. Uh, another way to get involved is to get in the dirt and start growing. You know, plant a basil plant, start a backyard garden, or start connecting with other farmers um, at a community garden, such as Spaces of Opportunity in Phoenix and Las Milpitas in Tucson. Sondland, so moving forward, how can people access the films and for any of the past films, are they still available to the public? Sure, of course. So the film series consists of 12 short films that are released the second Tuesday of each month. Right now, we have three films that are available for streaming and can be accessed on the Good Food Finder um, and streamed anytime from your home or on your computer. We have a summer film series that we're about to launch on June 8th that looks at Arizona agriculture and water, uh, new wave urban agriculture. So that looks at how do urban farms and rural farms work with the challenges that they're faced. And then finally, we, we tap into how do farmers get into retail spaces? How do you find which brands when you're in the supermarket to buy? Awesome. Thank you, Somlin. Yasmin Acosta spoke with Somlin Rory the Food and Farm Relations Manager with Good Food Finder, which is an initiative of Local First Arizona. The Good Food Film Series' next online presentation is Arizona Agriculture, Water. It premieres on Tuesday, June 8th. There's a link for information on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. A current exhibition at the Tucson Museum of Art takes an inclusive approach 
by asking four curators to each choose a contemporary artist they admire and bring these four solo shows together. It's called Four by Four, and it removes the idea that there is one dominant narrative about life. It reminds us that the range of lived experiences is varied and nuanced. Throughout the month of June, you'll hear conversations between these curators and artists. I didn't choose art, art chose me. My name is Willie Bonner and I'm an American artist. A lot of people like to associate me as a black artist. Uh, black is my culture, but I am American. I'm Dr. Julie Saucy. I'm the chief curator at the Tucson Museum of Art. My area is modern and contemporary art. Willie and I have known each other for actually many years, but in 2000, he was finishing up his master's degree at the University of Arizona, and um, I was working as a curator there. So uh, I mounted an exhibition of uh, his work. I loved his work back then. We got reconnected through uh, his inclusion in the biennial. And I said, you know, I need to see your new work. This is wonderful what you're doing. And paid a studio visit and was wowed. And then brought our CEO, Jeremy Michalazak, down to see the work. And that was actually the inspiration for 4x4. She was such a breath of fresh air in how she received me as an artist and my work. And it was the type of person that I always dreamt of meeting in my journey as being an artist. Basically, a curator organizes exhibitions, writes about the work in the collection. So we are uh, part educator, part fundraiser, part academic researcher, writer. But working with this curator helps me a lot. <laughs> He's great. Um, but I really just focus on the creative end. Uh, if I step outside of that, then other things start to affect how I think and produce work. Every artist is different that I work with. One of the things that I, I've learned to do over the many years I've been a curator is to get a handle on what an artist needs to get what they need to get done. He needs to be alone to do his painting. Art will always bring me back to recording what I feel, what I experience daily. And it was something that I couldn't shake. So I would sit at my mom's table as a child and would draw all the photographs or portraits of people in my family. Music came into my life through my parents. My mom sang gospel and my father was a jazz musician. Just that background of music and gospel, the jazz, blues, locked me into my culture. My favorite artist is Louis Armstrong. And it's the notes that he hits that bring about this real colorful, feel that I have that when I'm doing art, it goes into my work. I began painting and practicing the mannerism of Rembrandt's, but somehow reason that I didn't feel like I was in the work. I, I wasn't connected, even though I thought I did a decent job at it. And as time went on, Colors kept coming out, but wasn't supposed to be there because I was focusing on somebody else's spirit. I got to a point where I said, well, I'm just gonna leave it there and just see what happens. 
And then one color challenged another color, then all these colors started creating my true identity. When you walk into this exhibition, I think the first thing that, that I see is an explosion of color. The energy in this exhibition is just palpable. Occasionally, you see references to black culture uh, through text or through symbols, but you don't have to experience it uh, entirely through that lens. Willie is an artist. He is a black artist, but he is an artist, and everyone can uh, find this work accessible. Above all, I find the work positive, colorful, exuberant, and joyous. The bittersweet thing is that I, I see everybody as a human being. And uh, systemic racism is kind of like divide us from our humanity. It's a shame that some people have to live in anger or blindly towards one another. But when you look at some of these pieces here, there are portholes that are left open. So if you look at, cover the whole canvas, you'll start seeing that you can go not just at the surface, but the layers under it, you know? So it's taking into a deeper thought and a, drip, a deeper transition, not of any particular subject, but on the viewer themselves, where they stand and how they perceive the work. So I'm, when I'm painting, I'm just gauging the sensibility of being human. Artist Willie J. Bonner, talking with TMA Chief Curator Julie Saucy, and a story produced by Andrew Brown. You can see a video version of the story now on the Arizona Illustrated Facebook and Instagram pages. 4x4 Four Four will be on view at the Tucson Museum of Art through September 26th. And next week on this show, hear about the art of Nazifarin Lotfi, who explores the experience of belonging and bodies that are out of place. Who will be the voices of the future? The NPR Student Podcast Challenge is a nationwide talent search for students between 5th and 12th grades. Earlier this year, these aspiring podcasters were invited to create their own audio stories from the ground up, based on any topic they chose. These podcast excerpts all come from Julie Michelle's fifth grade class in the Catalina Foothill School District. While the sound quality in these homebrew productions may vary, one thing is consistent, the students' enthusiasm for their favorite subjects. Picture sprinting full speed across a square-shaped floor, shooting your body into the air, hoping you land on your feet. Yeah, crazy, right? Well, gymnasts have to do that every day. I have been doing gymnastics for about five years, and my favorite event has to be floor, but I also really enjoy vault. Well, without further ado, let's get started. Please welcome Taylor Spears, assistant coach of the University of Arizona gymnastics team. What goes into preparing for a competition? Well, gymnastics is different than a lot of other sports. Um, we don't have an off season. You don't stop training. I mean, you can take breaks here and there in the summer, but you just don't stop because if you don't do gymnastics for like two months, your skills maybe aren't there anymore. You know, you got to work to get those skills back. But our, I guess, toughest training would be in the fall. That's called preseason. So it starts probably in August and goes all the way through December. And that's when, you know, you're, you're building the muscle and 
you're putting in those really tough practices to get to where you need to be for when we start competing, you know, putting routines together and all of those things. So then when January rolls around, we're ready to go. My next one is what was your favorite event when you did gymnastics and which one was the most challenging? My favorite event was bars. I really loved bars. I was pretty natural at it. I just was good at swinging and I enjoy beam too, but bars was probably my favorite one. The most challenging event for me was vault. I'm was not a really powerful gymnast. I was more graceful and just slow. And so vault requires a lot of power, as you know, I'm sure. So that was the most challenging event for me. Yeah, mine was bars. I'm actually not very good at bars. My favorite event is floor, though, for sure. I like floor, too. Yeah. Um, so my next one is, uh, for me, um, I've been struggling on getting my... Um, double round off double back handspring so what are some tips you can give to get that well that depends are you struggling mentally or are you struggling physically physically like getting enough power to do it okay well i would suggest maybe doing private lessons if you haven't yet with whoever your coach is one two work on your round off have a really powerful round off use your legs turn it over push off push off your hands you got to get that power for the back handspring and then the same thing on the, the first back cancer, you had enough power to get the second one. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. And my last question is what advice would you give to young gymnasts out there? I would definitely say, even if it's hard at first, or if you're, you're struggling with something like yourself, you know, struggling with round off back cancer in my handspring, just keep working at it. Don't give up because you will get it and use all the resources that you have. Talk to your coach about it. Ask what else could I do, you know, to make this better? So if you're struggling, you know, keep pushing through and just give it everything you got and you will be successful. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. Thank you for joining me. I hope you guys learned a few things of what it takes about being a gymnast. Hello, everyone. This is the start of the 52nd Super Bowl podcast, where I will talk about the amazing Super Bowl that happened in 2018. I will also be talking about the best plays in the events that led to the end of this amazing Super Bowl. The two teams playing in the Super Bowl were the Philadelphia Eagles and the New England Patriots. The Eagles' main quarterback, Carson Wentz, was sadly injured during a game of the regular season. That meant that the Eagles had to put in their backup quarterback, Nick Foles. No one expected Foles to be so good in the playoffs that he helped the Eagles make it to the 52nd Super Bowl. After the coin toss, the Patriots were handed the football. A couple plays later, the Eagles scored a 25-yard field goal. That meant that the score was Eagles 3, Patriots 0. A few more plays later, the Patriots kicker, Steven Gostkowski, scored a 26-yard field goal. Fun fact, this was the first Super Bowl where the Patriots scored in the first quarter. After a few plays, Philadelphia Eagles running back LeGarrette Blount ran for a whopping 36 yards. That's a lot of yards gained on just one play. After that, and a few more plays later, Foles threw the ball to wide receiver Alshon Jeffrey, who caught it for a 34-yard touchdown. Sadly, Elliott missed the extra point this time. A few plays after, the Eagles punted it to the Patriots. 
Brady threw a 50-yard throw to Patriots wide receiver Danny Amendola, who caught the pass flawlessly. A couple plays after that, the Eagles running back Corey Clement caught the football and ran for an amazing 55 yards. After that play, Nick Foles caught the ball on fourth down for a touchdown. This play was nicknamed the Philly Special. The current score is 22-12 Eagles. Now it was time for the halftime show, which was performed by Justin Timberlake. After that amazing halftime show, Patriots tight end Rob Gronkowski scored a five-yard touchdown, followed by a signature spike. Then, Jake Elliott kicked a 46-yard field goal, which made the current score 32-26 Eagles. After that field goal, Gronkowski scored yet another touchdown. This was the Patriots' first lead the Super Bowl. Eagles tight end Zach Ertz made an 11-yard touchdown, which gave the lead back to the Eagles. Tom Brady attempted a Hail Mary pass, which was unsuccessful. The game was over. The Eagles won the 52nd Super Bowl. The final score was 41-33. In my opinion, I think that the Eagles deserve to win the Super Bowl because of their exceptional play calling. What's your opinion? Hello everybody, it's Olivia Aryev, and today I'm going to be talking about all about snakes. And when you think of snakes, do you think of gross and slimy, or do you think of cuddly, cute, and adorable? If you think of the first one, I'm going to be proving to you that snakes are greater pets than you think. Snakes are quiet, and you don't have to take time out of your day to walk them. They are wonderful companions. They like to stay warm so they can cuddle with you. Believe it or not, snakes actually cause stress relief for their owners. Some good pet snake types to get for beginners are corn snakes, ball pythons, and gardener snakes. Corn snakes are probably the best one for beginners. Corn snakes are easy to handle, they're cute, they are good eaters, and one of the easiest to care for. My goal is to get more people to like snakes. And by listening to this podcast, I have hope you've learned that snakes aren't as bad as you think. See you later! We just heard excerpts from podcasts created by Brian, Jake, and Olivia, all fifth graders in the Catalina Foothills School District, who participated in the 2021 NPR Student Podcast Challenge. This annual event begins each January, and NPR provides free support materials to any class, educator, or homeschool that would like to take part. Who knows what we'll be hearing about next year. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Yasmin Acosta. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.